Um, I think it's the intimacy that these devices have in our lives. People are used to getting their credit cards hacked now. I won't go as far as to say it's not a big deal, but nobody really freaks out when their credit card company says, we're replacing your credit card because we've had a security breach. But these devices keep people alive, you know, and it's a very intimate thing to have something controlling your health. And the thought of not having control of that device and somebody else having control of it is really scary. You've heard of hacking credit cards, mobile phones, computers. Hey, maybe you've even been the victim of one of these hacking attacks. It's a huge inconvenience to have any of your electronic devices hacked and exploited. But what if someone was able to hack into something so private and so inextricably linked to you that it could cause more than just an inconvenience? It could potentially end your life. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Liebeter. So the story begins back in uh, the mid-2000s. And this is Jay Radcliffe. I was at a security conference watching a presentation of somebody reverse engineering and hacking into parking meters. It was a great presentation, and a friend of mine next to me elbowed me and said, hey, you should do that with your insulin pump. And I kind of laughed and said, yeah, sure. And then I thought, well, yeah, I should do that. Jay is a type 1 diabetic. This means he's dependent on a pump connected to his abdomen that delivers insulin 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. It regulates his blood sugar levels, and if these levels are wrong, Jay could die. When a diabetic has too much insulin, their blood sugar goes low. And as that blood sugar gets lower and lower, the body starts to shut down. And it's a condition called hypoglycemia. And if your blood sugar goes to zero, your body can turn off because your brain and your heart need sugar to stay alive. So when Jay's friend challenged him in the mid-2000s to hack his insulin pump, this is what he was talking about. Jay's friend, and in the end Jay, wanted to see if it was possible to send a message to his pump to overdose on insulin. And in that process, I found that there wasn't much security, and it was quite surprising. So I was able to remotely turn off my insulin pump. I was able to change the therapy settings and change the amount of medicine it gave me. And I was quite surprised by it. And I thought, this will make a really nice little presentation at a conference. What I found out was that it would make a really big presentation at a conference. And uh, it got a lot of media attention and it, it caught a lot of people off guard. If you want to hack a medical device, it has to be remotely accessible. Some insulin pumps aren't connected to any networks. They're offline, if you will, and aren't vulnerable to hackers. Jay's pump, on the other hand, could be changed with a wireless remote control, so it, in theory, could be hacked. The first step to test this theory involved a ham radio. I have a, a pretty long background in radio. Uh, I have a ham radio license and have been a licensed radio person for a long time. And so I used a lot of that knowledge to capture the signals that were being transmitted by these devices. Ham radio is hobby radio. Hobbyists use radio frequencies to talk to people all over the world. You can even get in touch with the International Space Station. Five watts. Five watts. Five watts. Five watts. 
as a hobbyist, my dad and I, when I was a little kid, we would put a wire up in the trees and we'd use Morse code and, and we'd talk to people all over the world with very little than, you know, a car battery, a radio and some copper wire in a tree. Although not just anyone can do this, you do have to have a license. Any device that uses the electromagnetic spectrum has to be registered with the Federal Communications Commission before it's approved for use. So Jay is registered with the FCC to be a ham radio hobbyist, and his insulin pump is also registered. Part of the registration process involves telling the FCC what frequency you're using. So I was able to look up the frequency for this device just by, you know, using Google, and that gave me the information that I needed. And after that, it's a matter of twisting a few dials on the radio. And then I could program the radio equipment that I have to capture signals on those frequencies. And then I could translate that into ones and zeros and, you know, eventually look at those messages that were being communicated from the remote control to the insulin pump itself. The ones and zeros? That's the second stage of this process. Jay used his computer skills to break apart the messages his pump and remote were sending each other. Basically, the way it works is the remote says, I want you to give three units of insulin to whatever you're connected to. And the insulin pump goes, okay, I'll give one unit right now. And then the remote goes, great, good job, give another unit. You know, there's a little back and forth communication there until the command is completely executed. And then he built a program that copied those messages. Well, essentially, I pretended like I'm the remote. So I said, hey, insulin pump, I'm this remote. I want you to give 150 units of insulin to this patient. And the insulin pump goes, well, I'm supposed to take commands from that remote, so I'm, I guess I'm going to do that. The pump was a chump. It didn't ask any questions. It just did as it was told. Did it actually go through with it, or did you have to stop it before it got too serious? All of the research that I did... Uh, I did it with the insulin pump disconnected from me <laughs> because uh, I didn't know what exactly was going to happen. I was I was pretty I was experimenting and, you know, I didn't want to be the first victim, uh, you know, of a of a cyber attack uh, on myself. Jay's not the first person to hack a medical device. The earliest reports of hacking a device go back to 2008, when researchers were able to prove that pacemakers could be hacked. You okay? This is a scene from Homeland in a classic example of art imitating science, where Vice President William Walden is killed by someone hacking into his pacemaker. funny. You got some balls, Brody, I'll give you that. I'm not joking. Whether it be a pacemaker or an insulin pump, it's terrifying to think that a device that is meant to keep you alive could be used to kill you. Not only that, these devices contained so much intimate information about you, such as your activity levels and your location. Think about it like a Fitbit, only you can't remove it at your leisure. These are all possible weaknesses that you don't want to reveal to someone with sinister intentions. But unless you're the Prime Minister or the President, these are all threats you probably don't need to worry about. Fred Bloggs, you know, who's got a, a pacemaker, no one's going to try and, you know, just hack into that because 
there may not be any value to it. This is Michael. My name is uh, Michael Blumenstein. I'm the professor and head of school at the School of Software in the Faculty of Engineering and IT at UTS. He reckons hackers have two main motives, extortion and to send a message by killing someone like the vice president. Most hackers do things to do one of two things. They want to get money through extortion or they want to make a point and, and you know, send a message. The homeland example is because it's an important person and by taking that person down, you're actually going to change things in a big way. Oh, and if you are listening and work in high places, Michael says it may be possible to use your privilege to get some extra protection. Joe Bloggs can't go to the manufacturer and say, can you make this more secure, please, because I feel threatened. But a prime minister or president could go to the manufacturer and say, you know what, you know, I got one of these and I would really like to see what you could do with that. You could probably see that there would be some potential for, for there to be extra built-in mechanisms to try and prevent this sort of hacking for, for those high-profile individuals. Over three million people worldwide have a pacemaker, although there are other implanted devices used to stop irregular heart rates, such as a defibrillator and a cardiac monitor. In Australia, it's only been in the last 12 months that these devices have started to get hooked up remotely. If you think about it, monitoring devices remotely is only something we've been able to do in recent years because of Moore's Law. The tech has been too big to have remote monitoring and fit in your chest. What were these devices like when they first entered the market? Were they pretty basic? Yeah, definitely. They were very chunky, very large. In fact, when they first came into the market, they were so big we had to put them in the abdomen, the belly, because there was no space under the chest. Now they've kind of miniaturised them and we can slip them in a very small incision under the collarbone generally for most patients now and they're getting even smaller. This is Dr Bradley Willsmore, a cardiologist from Newcastle in New South Wales. Moore's law, put simply, is that computing power doubles in a smaller space at a lower cost every few years. So it's only recently that we've been able to have implanted devices that can do the job of keeping you alive and send messages back to your doctor on how you're tracking. Previously, you would have to go and see your doctor every 12 months to check everything was running smoothly. Up until about 12 months ago, patients would routinely, it was the standard of care that they would have to come into a doctor's office, regardless of where you live and how far away the doctor was. Some people I still have would drive 12 hours to get their device checked. They would come into the doctor's office. We have to put a wand over the skin surface, so over the device to read the information and then program the device. Um, so it was a lot of travel and there's good evidence that 90% of those visits, we don't actually do anything or change anything. But now that remote monitoring is being introduced, Dr. Willsmore's patients don't have to leave home to see if their device is working. And he receives constant updates on how his patients are doing via phone or email. Now what happens is patients get a little modem-like device. Um, they stick it under their bed, they plug it in, and then most of them are, are set and forget. So they plug it in and from then on, all the transmissions are done remotely. In fact, without the patient most of the time actually doing anything or triggering anything, goes up into a cloud, I can then access that cloud or it will alert me via phones or emails or whatever I choose. And uh, I can access that patient's information. Although, as you now know, this means these devices are vulnerable to a cyber attack. If a patient's dependent on the device, you can run the battery flat on that device and potentially cause death. You can also, in fact, from most of the devices with not much additional skill, obviously, other than the tech skills to be able to hack the device, you could induce very fast heart rhythms, which could 
precipitated cardiac arrest. In any of these devices, it's a trade-off. You're trading convenience and consistent monitoring for the remote potential that someone could hack your device. You know, the whole of medicine, we weigh the risk and benefit. And whilst there is a very small theoretical risk of a device being hacked, the remote monitoring has been proven to save lives, to prevent strokes, early detection of device problems and issues. And so it really does have much, much greater benefit than the potentially small risk of harm. You know, when your phone or computer says time to update, it's usually because the company has found out about a security flaw in the device that makes it vulnerable to attack. Because implanted medical devices are trying to conserve as much space as possible to make them inconspicuous and fit in your body, they just don't have the ability to be updated when a security risk is noticed. But this may be changing. Michael Blumenstein again. You're not going to get in your pacemaker a little ding that comes up and says, you know, ready for the new install? It's not going to happen, you know, um, just like we do on our PCs or our uh, iPhones. So it's more difficult, firstly, because until this whole business of remote access was available, there was actually no way to do it at all. Now you could do it. The challenge with devices, which are for medical type applications, is that there's a predefined software that goes with the hardware And it's usually not very flexible. But I suspect that that is what's going to be emerging more and more, is is for customizable software. As a patient and now researcher in medical tech, Jay's stunt got him a gig with Rapid7, a cybersecurity firm where he regularly hacks medical devices now. Jay says it's just a risk you have to take. Um, You know, you take a risk when you get in the car and you drive. Some people don't fly because they feel that it is too dangerous, that the plane might fall out of the air, or that's just too much risk for them. I think the same thing with a lot of these medical devices. I think that we have to be aware of the risks so we can make a decision of we want to take some of those risks. But when you look at what these devices offer as far as quality of life, as far as duration of life, then, you know, those are risks that people are worth taking. But hacking into a remotely monitored device is one thing. Who is doing the monitoring is another. Find out what is actually scaring Dr. Bradley Wheelsmall after the break. Where are you getting your daily dose of reading? Are you an ardent bookshopper? Are you an e-reader fanatic? Do you ever get out and hit up some live storytelling? My name is Andrew Popel and Final Draft is, of course, that half hour every Saturday morning where we sit back, relax with a good book and talk reading and literary culture. Final Draft. Books, writing and publishing. Telling stories is such a human thing to do. Saturday mornings from 10 on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Lee Beter. And today we're talking about hacking medical devices. Now, there is the potential that hackers can wreak havoc on your pacemaker or insulin pump or whatever device you have that can be monitored or adjusted remotely. But it's a pretty small risk. What's keeping Dr. Bradley Wilsmore up at night is responding to all those beeps and rings when something is going wrong with your cardiac device. You have so much information. Like, how do you have a life when this is on your phone? Yeah, so uh, it can be the bane of my existence. In fact, when you have hundreds of patients being device monitored remotely and there are lots of customizable features, as you can imagine, with any cloud-based technology and You can set it to alert on a phone, to message on a phone, to email, to call. It's all as you would expect with IT nowadays. You can customize it. And so what we tend to do is for really nasty stuff, we want to be phoned. 
And for just minor stuff, we'll often just get a message or an email and follow it up in due course. Well, that and the fact when Dr. Willsmore is monitoring these devices, he's not getting paid to. Doctors who work in public hospitals don't get reimbursed that much from Medicare, whereas private health insurance reimburses the company who supplies and monitors the device much more handsomely. When doctors got reimbursed for remote monitoring, we get for some devices none, for some devices $50, other devices $150 for a year's work, one year of one patient monitoring. So we have no incentive to do it. When the government introduced legislation that for a company providing a remote monitor, they got $1,960, the rate of remote monitoring has gone through the roof to the point that it's approaching 100%. And with the average age of a pacemaker being six or seven years, $50 spread over that time is pretty thin. So it's not necessarily bad that companies are responsible for managing these devices because it frees up doctors to be doctors. Oh, so, I mean, it's in their interest to have patients do well. And so they want their devices to be secure as well. And, you know, in a free market, there are four companies we get to choose from. So there's a vested interest from them as well to do a good job, provide a good service for patients to live longer. At least to some degree, there is unity of a consensus that we all want the patients to do well. The big question mark is, what happens when one of these devices fails? either because of a technical fault or a security breach. Who's held responsible? If one of these remote devices does fail, who do you sue? Do you sue the company or the doctor? This is going to be a huge issue with remote monitoring. And uh, so to answer a slightly separate question first is that if a patient's heart goes out of rhythm with the device in and they're being remotely monitored, something's not done about that, If they go into that rhythm, there's a risk of stroke. If that person had a stroke and was remote monitored and we didn't prevent it, we're legally liable. So that 24 hours a day, seven days a week becomes really critically important, not only for patient health, but for the medico-legal implications as well. And so the companies have actually been, to answer your question directly, very keen to offload all of the responsibility to the doctor And so every company now, when starting remote monitoring, gets the patient to sign a disclaimer saying that the doctor's responsible for the remote monitoring. And so that puts a huge burden on us because the guidelines say everyone should be remote monitored. The companies say that we're responsible for remote monitoring and we can't personally keep up. The expectation from patients to have 24-7 access to healthcare places a huge responsibility on doctors and these companies as well. Yeah, but even the companies you can't really manage some of the burden of this. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of devices implanted and to monitor them 24 hours a day, seven days a week is a huge task. And so even the companies, in fact, and the biggest companies are often just saying and getting patients to sign documents between the hours of eight and five, Monday to Friday, we'll have a good response time. But out of those work hours, we can't guarantee immediate responses. Bad news if your pacemaker starts playing up at 6 o'clock on a Friday. In saying that, the fact that these devices can be monitored all the time, that's way better than when you had to wait 12 months to see the doctor. In that scenario, you could have had a problem with your heart two or three months after the surgery and wouldn't know about it till nine or ten months later. In some ways, 12 months ago, if you walked out of a device check and had an issue, it would be 12 months before you came back and had it checked. 
So now the fact that we can monitor it instantaneously means that that turnaround is about one to two days, which is infinitely better than it was. As technology becomes more and more pervasive in our lives and as it advances and we become physically more entwined with it, the risks will continue. But so too will the benefits. If we go back to Jay and type 1 diabetes, having to manage your insulin every time you eat can be burdensome, especially for young kids. Jay says the future of health tech, it's looking pretty peachy. I'm very optimistic. The excitement and the the possibility of this technology changing people's lives and making them healthier is incredible. You know, we look at things like the artificial pancreas project and how we can have wireless sensors interacting with each other that basically means a child can have a cupcake or go to a sleepover without having to to have a huge amount of concern from a parent where a diabetic right now, you know, a diabetic child right now doesn't have those luxuries. You know, quite often they can't go to sleepovers or have anything they want to eat. They, they're very tightly controlled. So I see awesome potential for this technology to change people's lives. But I also keep in mind that we have to make sure it's safe and secure. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, a show produced by 2SER in conjunction with the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find out more about the show at 2SER.com forward slash Think Digital Futures. I'm Ellen Liebeter. See you next week.